Hello, I'm your host, John Hendren, and this is BachCast 51. In this episode, we're listening to Bach's sixth partita for keyboard. We've already looked at several of, partita, of his partitas in earlier episodes, and I want to look at number six. I'm kind of going with my favorites, if you will. So number one, number two, my, th- my third place, if you will, be number six. And this movement, um, the, the sound of it really doesn't fit the name. It's an air. And I think of a classic air as like the, uh, the air from Bach's orchestral suite number three, uh, the famous piece with a solo violin, or I sometimes play with the first violin section. I'm not sure we're at a conclusive decision about how that should be played, but it's a slower piece and it's melody driven. And this is the opening you've heard from three different performers. And in each one, they, they sort of match in the intensity of the tempo. Um, they differ in the style. And of course, that's what we're going to expect when we listen to different performances. The first performance was by Benjamin Elard, um in an, an Americanized accent, Benjamin Allard. That's his recording of the Klavierübung uh, number one, uh, the first keyboard collection published by Bach, the six partitas. And his recording was on the Alpha label on harpsichord. And between the repeats, he really doesn't differentiate. Um, he's got this very forward momentum going. It's a very closely mic'd recording, but I think it's the sound quality of that recording is very, um, it's, it's good. It, it really supports the sound of the instrument and supports the music with a very light veil of reverb. The second recording was the recording of Bach, by David Frey, David Frey, I guess, if you're going to put it in a Frenchified accent. He's a French pianist, and in his recording, he uh, it's not a complete recording of the partitas. It's, it's several works, including a toccata, and he records the sixth partita, um, and his rendition on piano is, is interesting. There's a warmth to the sound of the instrument. One of my criticisms when I reviewed this recording was the sound, the mechanical sounds, and the the sound of the performer that was captured. Um, You can hear him, especially if you put on headphones, you can hear him in the recording. And you can hear some uh, fluctuations in tempo, especially in this particular movement. Um, And so that's something to, to make of it. Uh, in general, I like his pianism. It's not specifically in the um, typical romantic vein that we might expect, although it does have a lot of air around it. There are some various uh, interpretive decisions that speak to a romantic spirit. But I also feel that there's a cleanliness to his playing that uh, doesn't really betray the spirit of Bach either. Uh, you give something up by maybe going to the piano. You give something up if you um, go to the harpsichord. I mean, there, there are trade-offs either way. But historicism and the uh, 
betraying Bach's sound world, something I'm sensitive to. And I think David Frey is is on the edge, but uh, nevertheless, I like his recording, uh, although there are things to point out that I think are strong and maybe not as strong. But in this instance, he's sort of on the same page with these other performers. The third performance we just heard of the air is on harpsichord, is a historical approach, and the performer is Tan Koopman. Now, Tan Koopman is clearly in the camp of the historically informed practice, but his, his style is, a, is perhaps more ebullient, a little more florid, uh, a little more decorated than your typical harpsichordist. He is dead set on ornamenting the music, ornamenting beyond the mordants, the trills, the, the turns that Bach may have left in the music. He, he does so at, uh, to some critics, he goes overboard with that. But I f- have found, and this is my most, the, the newest recording to me, uh, the six parties as recorded by Tan Kutman on harpsichord, to be some sort of refreshing uh, of the recordings I've had. And so uh, I really like what he brings to, to the party. Let me speak for a moment about the, the, uh, the suite in general. So we're talking about box partitas. We're talking about keyboard suites. These are collections of, of small pieces Typically, they're going to be in a binary form, which means there's an A section and a B section, and those sections get repeated. And these pieces are typically in the guise of dances. And if you've listened to our previous editions, we know that Bach is really pulling out all the stops, if you will, to really impress uh, folks with his uh, compositional skills. He's writing in a number of different styles, and he's using language that alludes to these styles. So this particular partita is particularly long with seven movements. Um, I'm going to skip the first movement for just a second. I'm going to start talking about the second, which is an allemande. And if you look at all of Bach's partitas, the allemande is, is um, is a form that is going to be found in almost every suite. Allemands were going to be found in almost any keyboard suite. It's one of the most common dances. Uh, in terms of tempo, it's it's a forward momentum piece, but it's not the fast piece. Okay, and typically it's in second place. Bach follows that with a corrente, a corrente. Uh, he uses a corrente came from the Italian originally, and so you can think of it as, as sort of a faster, a running, if you will. He follows that not with the classic sarabande, that's in the next place, but he inserts that air that we just heard. So the first movement, let's just call it a big movement, okay? Then an allemande, sort of standard piece. And the corrente, a faster piece. The air, in this case, it's got some speed behind it. It's got some momentum behind it. And then the sarabande. After that, in some of his other partitas, uh, 
it's up for grabs. He's got a bunch of different types of dances. If we look at the third partita, it goes Fantasia, Allemande, Corrante, Sarabande, and then he ends with three movements there, a burlesca, a scherzo, a jig. If we look at the fourth partita, it's a sort of introductory overture, followed by Allemande, Corrante, Aria. Okay, that's the fourth. Then Sarabande, Menuet, Jig. A jig is typically, especially in Bach, the last movement. It's usually in an eight rhythm, a three eight, a six eight, a nine eight. Da 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 da. You can think. I mean, granted, an Irish jig, right? It's it's got some sort of a strong tempo to it. In the in the sixth partita. Bach gives us a jig as the final movement. And it's a big, it's a big movement. It's, it's, it's a long piece. But between the Sarabande, which is that sort of slow movement, he gives us not a gavat, but he writes it tempo di govata, which is sort of an indication of maybe this is not quite a pure gavat, but it's in that style. He does the same thing in the fifth partita in the same position. Tempo di minuetta. Not a minuet, the tempo of a minuet. Sort of playing with the idea, but maybe not following all the rules. So Bach, if you look at the whole, if you get, you know, as I commonly say in my work, you get in the hot air balloon and you look at the big picture. The first partita is very classic. It's five movements. These are common dances. The alamand, the corrente, the sarabande, the minuet, the jig. In the second partita, he does almost the same thing. But he introduces some interesting movements. A rondo and a capriccio. And we get to the sixth partita. He's introducing yet again some flavorful dances. When I say flavorful, I mean he's taking the cue from different nationalities. He's taking the cue in the language. He's he's adding this sort of internationalism. If we look at Telemann, his one of his competitors and friends and uh, fellow musicians, Telemann was all about taking these different national flavors into his music. And so it shouldn't be totally surprising to us that Bach is maybe trying to do the same thing. This is a major thing for Bach. He is putting out to the world his first major opus of pieces. He's a keyboardist at heart, despite the fact that we know him as a choral composer, that we know him as an orchestral composer. He, at least in his mind, he is a keyboard player. He's most famous for being an organist. He has entered musical contests with other keyboardists. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal in his time. He wants to be noticed. Maybe his, his highest aspiration, despite everything that we know about him wanting to be a church musician, is not to live in Leipzig and work for the, the town council and deal with all the politics. 
Bach is a gifted composer. He's a gifted musician. And so he's really putting forth a lot in this particular collection of pieces. Let's listen to the opening movement. I've skipped over what it's called. I mentioned in the partie number three, he calls it a fantasia. In number four, he calls it an overture. In number five, his opening movement is a preambulum. In the first partie, it's a preludium. We're using our Latin here. So in the sixth partita, he calls it a toccata. A toccata was to be a piece, a warming up piece. It, toccata means to touch. It comes from the Italian. It was the warm-up piece on a keyboard. We know Bach wrote many toccata for the organ. It's a warm-up piece. It's getting the fingers warmed up. It's getting the sonority of the instrument into your head. It's feeling the instrument. It's sort of a warm-up. That's the classic idea behind a toccata. To Bach, a toccata is a multi-section piece. He fashions it here, slow, fast, slow. It does echo for me the concept of an overture, a French overture, which typically is slow, fast, slow. French overtures were known to be these grandiose pieces with dotted rhythms. And with Bach, this is not his only keyboard piece to be named a toccata. He wrote the toccatas, he wrote a collection of pieces named Toccata, which, which vary in form as well. But typically, the idea of this slow, fast, slow should not be new to us. And in these performances, the performers have a lot of options. Because this is, could conceptually be considered a warm-up piece, there's a lot of interp interpretive um, variation at play. And we're going to start with the Tan Koopman edition. Uh, to me, it's one of the strongest editions, but we're going to listen to multiple ones because that's what we do here in Bachcast. We compare the recordings. So this is the opening of the sixth partita, BWV 830, performed on harpsichord by Tan Koopman. <laughs> is very abrupt, uh, arresting, and despite the fact that I said it's a kind of a slow, fast, slow movement, there's a lot of energy, a lot of speed. Let's compare that with the French pianist David Frey.
So the classic battle is between the harpsichord, which has this evenness in sound. The harpsichord cannot differentiate based on the touch of your hand on the key a volume difference. That is the way the harpsichord is constructed. That is the harpsichord's, for better or worse, that's its temperament. And the only way to get difference in sound in a harpsichord is to change the position of the plectrums. In a harpsichord of the period, typically the material used were quills, parts of a feather that would come up and pluck those brass strings. Uh, as harpsichords are made today, typically quills are expensive, they're not as reliable, so they'll use a plastic plectrum that pulls. But either way, performers today may use uh, synthetic or authentic uh, natural materials to do that. The way you change the sound is by to change the position or the number of strings that are being plucked. And so when we talk about registers in a harpsichord, we have the eight-foot register, which is the, the pitch at which is written. If we talk about a four-foot register, that is doubling it uh, an octave higher. And if we look at a 16-foot register, we're looking at an octave lower. So none of the performances I'm going to share with you today is a 16-foot register. The other thing that can change the sound of a harpsichord beyond playing multiples of strings, for instance, two eight-foot registers and a four-foot register, that would be a very loud uh, harpsichord. The way they did this, if you look at a harpsichord keyboard, they might have multiple keyboards, a double keyboard instrument. And one keyboard may play the eight-foot register, the other may play the four, or one may play the eight and a four together. The other one may play just the eight. Or you can change the position. And this typically is are the stops. And the stops could be controlled by a knee action, where you're moving your knee and pushing a lever, or by a lever near the keyboard. And this would produce a different type of sound. Typically, a lute stop would be a softer uh, sound. It would sound more like a plucking. And sometimes these sounds would be very kind of nasal. So a harpsichord, somewhat limited in its sound, but not limited, not limited from the harpsichordist's perspective. It's simply a different limitation, a different sound world from a, a, a modern piano. So the modern piano gives us the shading of dynamics. It gives us the, the ability to sort of add some nuance to phrases. But what about another Baroque instrument? The next performance we're going to hear is by Johannes Maria Bonnier, and it is performed on a harpsichord, uh, not a harpsichord, but a clavichord. A clavichord is another Baroque instrument, typically not meant for public performance at all. It's a very personal instrument. This is an instrument that is extremely quiet. But the one thing it does offer the Baroque performer is the nuance of touch. For on a harps uh, harpsichord where we get this sort of singular um, 
pluck of the string, no matter how hard or soft we press a key. On the clavichord, we get that nuance of touch that we would later enjoy, of course, on the piano. The idea that when you play harder on a note, it's more intense, it's louder, it's, it's a harder attack. And the clavichord does what the piano does, but sort of at a micro level. Uh, it's very um, enticing for me to listen to this, this recording at a very high level because it's very well done, and I love the nuance of sound that this performer brings to it. What I want you to hear is a, yet another interpretation of this, of this toccata, this opening movement. I'm going to play a little more of this one so you can get into the second section, which is typically the faster one, but it's also contrapuntal. But I want you to hear uh, what the nuance of touch, the nuance of dynamics adds to this, because I think there is a strong case for this having the nuance of touch. And that was not available in the harpsichord, but it was available in the Baroque era on the clavichord. And by the time of Bach's death, by 1750, the uh, first pianos had appeared. Uh, and we know that Bach had an experience with a piano when he went to visit his son's employer in Potsdam. So it's kind of an interesting modern twist to this, and it reacts very well, which seems to raise the question... Did Bach conceive this piece with the dynamic nuances? Because I think in this performance, you're going to, what, what you're going to hear is this very convincing case for those nuances being a part of the performance. Here it is, the contrapuntal centerpiece of the toccata.
So classic Bach, right? Interesting theme. Has a rhythmic component to it. Has that melodic component to it. You can easily hear it before. Dum da da, bum ba da, lum da la bum ba lum bum ba lum ba yum ba yum bum bum. And he includes ornaments in that. That's an important piece to it because those are actually in the music. Let's hear what Tan Koopman does to that. Tan Koopman. If you remember, likes ornaments. He also isn't afraid of speed. Hard for me to pick a favorite there. The performance on clavichord is a little slower. Performance on harpsichord a little faster. I'd like to move next to the sarabond. Uh, if you've noticed, I don't often go to sarabonds. They're not the most interesting of dances to me. There are there are many exceptions, uh, and one of those exceptions that I find uh, a real richness here is in the Cerebon from the Sixth Partita. I'd like to start with the same recording uh, by Johannes Maria Boigner on the clavichord. And as much as you're going to hear the texture and the sound of the instrument, I really want to focus your ear on the actual music. Uh, this, to me, sounds less, the interpretation is less of, uh, of a dance. It's more of this sort of... Uh, drama, and it echoes for me the opening to the toccata. Uh, it's some of the more um, heartfelt, uh, even to say romantic side of Bach that I think we have. of that chord, it almost goes to an atonal type uh, sound world. Not atonal, maybe polytonal would be the more appropriate word, but uh, definitely has, is stretching, uh, if you will, the tonality that was sort of in play in Bach's time. I'm going to contrast that now with Tan Koopman, who I also believe 
does an excellent job with this particular dance, the Sarabande. look for things that sort of match up. Either it's style, whether it's a theme, whether it's an idea, a concept in Bach. And sometimes they're hard to find. But in this particular piece, um, I wanted you to see what I think are parallels between the opening of this, um, this Toccata, then we get this Sarabande, which Kutman plays with a, with a lot more... Um, sensitivity to the time, to the tempo. Um, and both of them, I think, work, but it's interesting how they both work, I think. The last movement of the Sixth Partita, there's, there's sort of two jauntier, faster dances, if you will. There's, um, there's a gavotte, which Bach names the Tempo di Gavotta, and then the last movement is a jig, which is not unusual uh, for box keyboard suites to end with a jig. If you think of his cello suites as well, we, we have some jigs. Um, I want to look at this one in particular because uh, the theme is um, a little out there. It's, it's a little modern sounding to me, to my ears too. And I, and I say that, of course, from my current perspective as uh, a person living in this century and uh, having the sound world that we live in today. And so it's a little bit of a stretch for me to say this is modern sounding. But when you listen to a lot of Baroque music, and I do spend a lot of time listening to music from this period, uh, this particular piece starts out in an almost unconventional way. It's a very angular, uh, searching theme, if you will. It's not the only time Bach writes this way. But I tend to think it has a little bit of a parallel to the harmonies we hear in the Sarabande. And now we're hearing something similar but different. This is not harmony so much as it is the, the melodic line. If we think of Bach, Jigs, yes, it's going to be very contrapuntal, right? And so it's sort of this, this playful fugue, if you will. And uh, he... He gives us something that doesn't quite sound right, and then, of course, puts it into the context of an appropriate harmony. So I want to finish this episode with having you compare two different versions of this jig. I'm going to continue with the first example coming from Tan Koopman, um, and here's his edition or his performance of the jig from box sixth partita.
So that second one I interleaved in there is from Andreas Steyer, a well-known German harpsichordist. This is a release on the Deutsch Harmonia Mundi label of both the Klavier Übung 1 and 2. Um, Still has the ornaments, maybe not quite as encrusted (laughs) as I uh, tend to think of Kutman's playing with all, all of the intricacy there. But he's really pushing the tempo and, and still manages to uh, really perform well the written-out ornaments. And so I like that performance. I, I think both have their place. Both are viable. And I think both uh, will challenge us to think about uh, Bach's theme there. Uh, very somewhat austere. Uh, it has that, of course, you know, that rhythmic vitality, which... Yeah, is is so present in these pieces. Uh, it's one of the hallmarks of Bach's music. I always think of Bach as the master harmonizer, and the harmonies here uh, definitely are something to talk about, but it's those rhythms as well uh, that make his themes so attractive. I'd like to end this episode by contrasting the sound world of Bach in one of his published suites for keyboard by letting you hear a jig, this is a jig in another minor key. This comes from a suite in G minor, HWV 432. So we've changed from BWV to HWV into the Handel uh, repertoire. And so this is uh, going to be an example of George Frederick or Jorg Frederick uh, Handel's uh, idea of a jig. Um, of course, Handel is a great comparison to Bach. They were both well-known in their time. And of course, Handel was another great keyboard player and composer and was born in the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach. So in this uh, episode, we're going to end with some Handel. And I do that again just so you can compare what I feel is a very sort of forward-looking, modern uh, take on a jig from Bach and compare that with something that's maybe a little more traditional, just so you can hear the uh, stylistic differences. So what did you think? The handle to me sounds a little more traditional. It sounds a little more melodic. Um, we're not taking these big leaps, intervals, if you will, in in the theme. It's it's much f- much more fully dressed from the beginning. It reminds me, in fact, a lot more of the movement we heard at the very beginning of this episode, the air from the sixth partita, which Bach sort of kind of tucks it in safely in the middle of the suite. When he ends, and and I I have to think, you know, he writes six suites. He ends the suite with some 
some avant-garde, if you will, probably avant-garde for Bach, you know, avant, not avant-garde for a 21st century composer, not at all. Uh, that performance was by Richard Egar uh, of The Handle, uh, Richard Egar's well-known uh, keyboard player and director of London's Academy of Ancient Music. Um, and I just wanted you to hear that contrast because Bach and Handel were born the same year. Uh, they led very different lives. They had, I think, both successful careers in one way or the other. Handel probably uh, a little richer <laughs> for for his uh, his compositional skills and activities. But uh, if you go through musical history, following you know Handel, Bach, Scarlatti, they're all born in 1685. They had very different lives. I think you can also compare that with Telemann, who wasn't a 1685 baby, but he was close enough for comparisons. And uh, the fact that that Handel and Telemann, uh, in particular, were born to what I would say maybe more affluent families and had. Uh, different educational backgrounds, and really born into a different milieu, uh, really helped shape their careers. And yet it's Bach today that we talk more so of than any of those other composers. Not to slight Handel, he's still a very important composer to us, as as was Telemann, of course, Scarlatti, but um, just an interesting contrast to me, especially when we sort of hear that style that... Uh, we heard in that handle jig with the opening air from Bach. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a real joy for me to bring to you some of my favorite performances and to sort of get into the weeds a little bit of the sixth partita. Uh, I haven't presented you the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's a long one. It's a seven-movement suite, so I encourage you to seek out maybe one of the recordings that I highlighted or maybe you have one of your own that's a favorite. But take the time and listen to the whole thing because I think it's... Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to lump and say, oh yeah, Bach wrote six partitas, but to spend some time with just one of them because each one is um, worth exploring for its richness. And as I've hopefully pointed out in some of these examples, uh, there are lots of riches for our performers today to explore. And some of their solutions, their interpretive solutions are different but equally satisfying. If you like this episode, visit my website. At the website, you can find more music reviews of classical and Baroque literature. Bieberfan.org. That's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. Thanks for listening. I'm John Hendren.